You know, one of the things that, uh, as Tom mentioned, the, the work that I've been doing for a number of years as executive pastor, one of the things you realize that the first thing that you always do is you always do the things that the senior pastor doesn't want to do. And so, uh, you know, teaching and preaching on uh, the stoppage of stewardship for two Sundays is a daunting task. And so the reality is I get to do one of those things that's a little bit challenging. And so today we're going to look at, the Luke, at Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at the parable entitled The Parable of the Dishonest Manager. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, I spoke to you about living in the already but not yet. And that's a period of time that's between the Old Testament and the second coming of Christ. See, the, the Bible talks about this period of time as the present age. And the question for the church for 2,000 years has been, how do, are we to live in this age, in the here and now, while we wait for the coming of Christ? When Jesus came, he said in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is here. The problem is, the kingdom of God is in our hearts, but we live in a fallen world. And things won't be set right until our king returns. So we must live out the values and the principles of the kingdom in the here and now with the reality that the eternity is just as real as the here and now. But living out these values and principles puts us in contrast to our culture. There's no other area that puts this contrast on display like the topic of stewardship. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' perspective on wealth and possessions and money. We're going to examine a parable in Luke chapter 16. And, but before we do, I want to take a step back. And Jesus taught in parables. And I want to deal with why he taught in parables. In Matthew 13, he said this to the disciples. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. John MacArthur, in his book Parables, states, While the parables do illustrate and clarify truth with those that have ears to hear, they have precisely the opposite effect on those who oppose and reject Christ. The symbolism of the parables hide the truth from anyone without the discipline or desire to seek out Christ's true meaning. You see, parables help illustrate and explain truth to people who listen that are, are with faith and soft hearts. Hearts that are open to the work of the Holy Spirit. But they also conceal truth from unwilling and unbelieving hearts. And they do this by neatly wrapping the mysteries of Christ's kingdom in familiar symbols and simple stories. Understanding parables requires faith, diligence, careful examination, and a genuine desire to hear what Christ is saying. Childlike faith, prompted and enabled by the work of the Holy Spirit, is a necessary prerequisite to understanding the parables of Jesus. You see, money is a common theme in Jesus' parables. 
A third of the 40 or so parables that Jesus told have something to do with either earthly riches, treasure, coins, currency of some kind. See, Scripture emphatically condemns the love of money. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Paul writes that in 1 Timothy. Jesus' points in these parables that deal with money can be summarized in these four, th- in these four ways. How hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You cannot serve both God and money, and seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so we come to Luke 16. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable that reiterates these principles in a very unusual way. It's the story of a lying, cheating, unfaithful servant who was found out and put on notice, and he's going to be fired. He then cunningly uses his master's wealth to buy friendships that will be useful to cushion his fall. The parable's straightforward. It doesn't have any hidden meaning. But it's the story of a dishonest manager and has a terminal confrontation with his boss. But then he engages in some serious reflection, and then he comes up with an ingenious solution. The confrontation is a firing. See, a termination leaves a person with an empty feeling, a sense of lostness. Now, I don't know if you've ever been fired, but the summer of my senior year in high school, I came close. I worked for the National Guard at Camp Shelby just outside of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We were a group of high school and college age guys that were breaking rations for National Guard companies that came to Camp Shelby to train during the summer. Our job was to take the food that came off of trucks and there were dry goods, there were frozen goods, and then we would put them together also with the produce and make pallets, and then when the companies came to train each summer for a week, we would take those rations and load them on to trucks. And we did this by using forklifts. So you'd load the pallet of groceries on the, for, on the forklift and then take it and load it on these large two-and-a-half-ton diesel trucks that were part of each company of the National Guard that was there. The building in which we worked out of was a really large metal building, and it was a Quonset hut. Well, one morning, it was always Monday morning that we loaded the trucks. I took my forklift, took my pallet, loaded it on a truck, and then I proceeded to back up on the dock. Problem is, I backed up too far. And I whipped my forklift around and ran my forks of that forklift into the metal side of that metal building. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard metal on metal, but there is a screeching sound that was horrendous. It doesn't hold a candle to anything like fingernails on a chalkboard. And as I tried to pull my forklifts out of that metal building, every eye that was on that dock was looking at me. I was embarrassed. I was humbled. I wanted to run and hide. And that afternoon, I had the opportunity to meet with my boss and the commander of Camp Shelby, the base commander, to consider my future employment at Camp Shelby. It was an interesting conversation. I've never been in the military, but for a brief moment, 
I experienced what it might feel like to be at boot camp. I did not lose my job, but I came awfully close. The feelings that I had in that meeting, I think, reflect a little bit to how this this dishonest manager felt when he met with his master. See, in Jesus' tale, though, that the Terminator man was a scoundrel, a person who deserved to be fired. The manager had a crooked character. His own actions revealed that he was conniving and had no moral backbone. The rich man called the dishonest manager, the master called the dishonest manager, and told him to close out his management. The man was devastated because he knew he wasn't strong enough to do manual labor, and he didn't want to be destitute and homeless. We find this in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 16. He says, And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. The plan that the dishonest manager dreamed up has a lot to do with the way that business was conducted in Jesus' day. Jews were prohibited to charge interest to fellow Jews. We find this in passages in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. So they didn't have principle and interest the way that we would understand it. See, in Jesus' day, all of that was baked into the loan. So the manager was operating off of common accepted business practices, and he was making loans with built-in interest like everyone else. But the problem was he was charging exorbitant amounts. So we see in verse 5 and 6, So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. So the manager calls in every one of the master's debtors. And the first one owed a hundred measures of olive oil, and the manager cut the amount in half. That was a huge amount of debt. The manager removed the commission and any profit that the owner would have. And he did that also with the other debtors. The next one he does on the the commodity of wheat, he takes off his 20% commission. See, the manager does this not only with the master's debtors. He does this so that the bottom line is he wasn't going to get the money anyway since he was being fired. So he reduced the debt to wholesale prices. And he did this so that when he's unemployed, he would have generated such goodwill that those debtors would receive him into their homes. Now, there's no context that might might make this man's behavior anything but dishonest. But this is a parable. It's not real life. Jesus made this story up. And the only facts are the ones that Jesus gave us. And if the story seems to shock us, well, that's the point. See, the story is directed towards the disciples, believers. He says this in Luke chapter 16, verse 1. See, the disciples expected the the master in this story to punish the dishonest manager. But Jesus says in verse 8a, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. The master didn't approve of the the steward's dishonesty. 
He was going to fire this manager. He didn't approve of this man's disloyalty or think highly of his character. What he commended this steward for was his forward-thinking ingenuity. See, the Greek word translated shrewdly actually carries the idea of being very prudent or being clever. See, he didn't approve of what the dishonest manager had done, but he admired the man's foresight and astuteness. The disciples were pondering this, and then Jesus turns the story to them. In verse 8b, he says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. See, the dishonest manager had faced reality. He refused to live with his head in the sand. He was losing his livelihood. He knew that unless he did something fast, he was on the street. And he had baked in that enormous commission that he would never collect. So why not turn that investment and for the future. In contrast, the people of the light, they stand on the edge of eternity and give no thought to it. They lack the vision, the foresight, and the strength of will to do anything about it, especially in their relationships with others. You see, if only Christians would give the same attention and same thought to the things that concern eternity, as they do with their worldly concerns. If only they would be as shrewd as the corrupt manager. See, our problem is, we don't take eternity seriously. Well, there's some principles that fall out of this parable. The first one is seen in verse 9. Use worldly wealth to gain eternal friends. See, Jesus elaborates further in verse 9. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So who are these friends? Well, most commentators believe that they're God and others, other individuals. They're they're both. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You see, if we know Christ, if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are God's friend. And this parable is saying, make an investment in that friendship. But he's also talking about other friends, eternal friends, people that have benefited from the sharing of the gospel. Because of our generosity. These friends are people that you invest into for eternity. This can be fellow believers in the church. But it can also be unbelievers that you share the gospel with. You see, what's clear is that our wealth and possessions are given to us as a means to bless others here on earth for eternal purposes. When we see our lives as stewards and all that we have as the Lord's, then we see that what we have and who we are means that we're to live generously towards others. One thing is sure. Our worldly wealth and possessions will go somewhere when we die. 
But that place where they will not go is with us into eternity. Morticians are sometimes called upon to provide suits for burial for those who don't have one. And you know the distinctive thing about those suits? They don't have any pockets. You don't need pockets where you're going when you die. The question that Jesus is prompting the disciples to ask is our wealth and our possessions, is it bringing us closer to God by the way we manage it? Are we using our wealth and possessions to make a difference for eternity? Are we supporting the work of reaching people for the gospel? But to grasp this truth, to grasp what Jesus is saying in this parable, you have to believe in the eternal. You have to believe that the unseen is as real as the seen. You have to see that the time spent here on earth is a fraction of the time that we will spend in eternity. You have to take eternity seriously. And that leads me to the second thing in this parable. Be trustworthy with your financial resources. This is in verses 10 through 12. See, Jesus also taught in this passage that we must be trustworthy with money. He says this in verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. See, this is one of the principles of God's economy. He reiterates this in Matthew 25. And he was teaching about the return of Christ. And in that passage, what happens is the individuals that are given talents. And when the master returns, if that individual has been faithful then they will receive twice as much as what they had. And Jesus says in Matthew 25, 21, if you've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. So this is reiterated in verse 11 because Jesus states, if you've not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? See, it's clear in Luke 16 that the faithfulness that Jesus is referring to has to do with money. Verse 11 means that if you've not been faithful with money, which is unrighteous wealth, God will not trust with you with true riches, which are spiritual things. So what are these spiritual things? They're the souls of the people that you love, your family, your friends, your co-workers. It's the evangelism of the gospel through the church. See, Jesus is making the connection with how we handle our money and with what we've been given as resources and he's tying that management to spiritual matters. See, Jesus' point is that matters of eternity are far more valuable than material wealth. And then Jesus makes this point with a twist in verse 12. If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? In other words, material possessions are not ours. They're God's. 
We're stewards of the resources that God has given us. If we aren't good stewards of material wealth, how will God give us stewardship over spiritual matters that are much more valuable? One's use of money and spiritual matters are inseparably bound together. And the sooner we realize this, the better it is for our soul. You see, the souls of the members of your family, the souls of your co-workers, the souls that you will meet in the future, the souls that have yet to darken the doors of this church, the souls that we are to pray for across the world. God wants to entrust those lives to us. But if you don't handle the stewardship of his material wealth in the proper way, your heart will not be open to the spiritual stewardship that's so much more important. Spiritual stewardship is a building block for everything else. You see, being faithful to God is a big deal. The manager was fired because he wasn't faithful with what he had been entrusted with. And the reason that faithfulness is such a big deal to God is because he's so faithful to us. Faithfulness shows character, and it's a character that can be trusted. And the most important thing that God can entrust to you is someone's soul. One of the great privileges that a parent has is the opportunity to disciple their children. But one of the most important lessons of discipling children is that spiritual lessons are caught much more than they're taught. You see, learning how to depend on God and being a faithful steward of his resources, you can't learn that in a microwave. But if you walk faithfully in this process, it expands your heart. It prepares your heart for much more important things, and that's the stewardship of the souls that God has placed in your life. See, I promise you, when you come to the end of your life, you will not think about how well you have managed your money. But you will think about how well you loved, how you cared for those that God brought into your life. This weekend, this coming weekend, this on Wednesday, Sheila and I, are flying back to Lubbock, Texas. Our youngest daughter is getting married. This marriage is the culmination, is not the culmination of a life lived together. It's just another step in the process. But what is so great about this opportunity that Sheila and I have to participate in in this wedding is that not only are we going to get to continue the discipleship that we began with Courtney when she was a baby girl and prayed with her and walked with her and tried to teach her that God is faithful and you can depend on him but now we have a new son-in-law a new person a new soul that's going to be part of our family that we have the opportunity and the privilege of speaking truth into their lives as a couple. 
And if God is gracious, we're hoping and praying that we're going to have grandchildren. And those will be more souls that we will then have more of an opportunity to speak God's truth and his faithfulness and that you can depend on him no matter what's going on in your life. But the privilege of speaking that truth into the souls is, is a ground that's laid because you learn these principles. And so that leads us to the third principle that falls out of this passage. It is totally impossible to serve both God and money. Jesus says in verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is radical. There's no middle ground here. You see, if we're devoted to God, or if, if we're devoted to money, we will despise God with our intellect and hate him with our, with our emotions. But if we are devoted to God and we see our life as a blessing to others and the, and the stewardship of our resources, God can take that and use it in ways that we could never imagine. But see, every single believer who follows Christ has felt the tension of these words. And if you look into your soul through the window of wealth, how you deal with your money, that lets you know whether you're its master or does it master you. If money's your master, Jesus is saying God can't be your master. In fact, he states this point in the extreme. You will love one and hate the other. And no one wants to say they hate God. But Jesus states this in Luke 14, 26 and 27 when he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You see, we all go through times in life when material focus is required. We buy homes, we buy cars, we buy clothes, and everything in between. We live in a material world, and we, it requires an understanding of the economy and requires astute financial planning. At the same time, our world system tells us that what we have is never enough and that debt is our friend. There's a huge emphasis on a person's credit score that somehow that is the most important number in your financial life. The point that Jesus is making is that the world and its system seeks to make us its own. But the call of Christ is to live independently of the world. But that's difficult. But Jesus is saying that the person who follows Christ must fight for their spiritual, financial, and moral independence from the world. And declare their dependence on God. All believers would say that we believe that we should serve God and not money. But what we find too often is that we do try and seek and serve both. One reason I know this is true. If you really want to make people uncomfortable. Preach on stewardship. 
have a stewardship emphasis. Most believers, or a lot of believers, don't want to have a conversation where God and money are in the same conversation. But Jesus is saying if we're not sold out to following God, especially in the area of our our finances, then we have to realize we're not serving him. And too often at the root of our heart is our material wealth and possessions. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, Jesus was such a straight shooter. His words are uncomfortable. But in summary, he says, use your money to make an investment in eternity. Be faithful in how you steward God's resources, and God will bless you with spiritual influence that's much more important and much more valuable because he can trust you. You can't have your heart divided because if you do, you aren't serving God. Jesus is saying, wake up, be wise, be shrewd. Realize there is more at stake than what you have or what you don't have. Be in the here and now, but live for eternity. See, the reality is God doesn't despise earthly wealth, but he realizes its dangers. See, wealth has a strong current, but that current doesn't have to capture our hearts. If we manage our wealth well, we can advance the kingdom of God. That's the point of verses 14 through 17. See, the Pharisees heard Jesus' teaching, and they scoffed at it. They didn't believe that there was a connection between spiritual matters and their wealth. Verse 14 says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is abomination in the sight of God. And then in verse 16, Jesus says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. Now what in the world does Jesus mean in verse 16? As Tom mentioned, I was executive pastor at First Baptist Church of New Orleans. And there's a gentleman in that church. And in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, he was named as one of the top executives in the city of New Orleans. He started his own business from scratch. That business now covers a multi-state area, and it's a huge endeavor. And that's grown and grown. This individual is very successful, and he's always been very generous different causes, but especially to the church. But here's what I remember about this man. He taught Sunday school, unless he was out of town. He just never missed a Sunday. He went on mission trips. He hosted Sunday school parties and deacons meetings at his house. From the local elementary school, he would take classes out on his boat on Lake Pontchartrain and teach kids what it was like to be on the water and how to sail. He flies a plane, and 
I can't tell you the number of times I would hear about him taking people that had medical emergencies, had, had urgent needs. He would fly them all over the country. But you know what this man's favorite place, where his favorite place to serve is? As a greeter. He manned a door. Every Sunday he would arrive 20 minutes before worship and greet people as they would go to Sunday school and worship. Katrina hit while we were in New Orleans, devastated the city. And one of the first things we began to do as a church is to help individuals get out their homes. Some homes received as much as 10 feet of water. It was nasty, muddy, dirty work, tearing out sheetrock, trying to get all that stuff out so you could tear it down to the studs. This guy was always there. It wasn't long after we got through that phase that we began another phase, and that was building homes in the most devastated part of the city with Habitat for Humanity. We partnered with them and built over 100 homes. Well, the first Saturday that we were on the build, we had all gathered together, and the one thing that we were supposed to bring was a hammer. Well, I forgot mine. We were all standing there together, and I'll never forget, it came up to me and he said, don't worry, I always carry two in case somebody forgets one. I still have that hammer. Every time I use it, I think about this man. He would never want me to share his name. He just does not want the limelight. But the impact he's made in that city, the influence he's been in that, in that community, he's impacted and had influence on more lives than he could ever, ever count. And it's all been a reflection of God's generosity. And he will carry many of those souls with him into eternity. But see, when people talk about this guy, they never talk about how much money he has. They all talk about the impact he's made. How generous he's been. How he always tells people about First Baptist Church. He lives in the here and now. But he's investing for eternity. You see, you can't force the kingdom of God. If you love money, these principles don't work. But if you recognize your spiritual poverty, your need for God, you will have a childlike faith, a soft heart. And it allows you to see that all that you have, all that you are through the lens of stewardship. And then the current of wealth doesn't have your heart. And it becomes the most natural thing in your life to live your life as a blessing to others. And what will happen is that then God will entrust you with their souls. Let's pray. Father, as we think about your words on stewardship. God, all of us recognize that, God, we've not always been what we need to be. And so, Lord, as we hear your words and we hear this challenge, I pray that for each one in this room, no matter where they are in this process, that, Father, they experience a renewal, an excitement that they realize that who they are and what they have is not theirs, it's yours. And that you are so generous with us 
You're so faithful to us. And God, as, we're, as we understand those principles and we let those principles sink into our hearts, it really does change our perspective on life. And so, Father, as we come to this time of reflection, this time of invitation, God, if there's someone in here that has felt like they're, they're not doing this very well, well, God, this is a great time for them to begin today, to begin planning and living a life that they can build a legacy upon to make an investment for the future. So we pray all this in Jesus' name.